0: So I want to share some thoughts and reflections about working with the inner critic, which has been a transformative part of my own journey over the past few years. But Before I do that, I want to share uh, something which was written by a friend who I knew too little who passed away last week uh, on Thursday from cancer uh, in his funeral of sorts was at this afternoon a very okay. a really special young man who died at 35 was involved for many many years in yoga and meditation and healed himself a number of times through alternative methods and ultimately submitted but just taught huge lessons to, to a bunch of people and, and died. Very intentionally and beautifully, you get this, Daniel Davis is his name, perhaps we'll have in mind, perhaps let's have in mind that uh, our learning, our exploration, our growth is the So he wrote, amidst the complex and challenging life situation that I've faced over the past few years, I always remind myself as a kind of buoy against the current of the collective unconscious that has conferred on me conditions upon conditions since the day of my birth, that death is okay. It must exist because without it there is no life. It is okay to devote oneself to death, even to be excited about its advent, as an event of tremendous spiritual significance a gateway to a reality totally different from everything I have known in the world in which I currently live. Living life to its fullest now, releasing all fears and attachments, so that in the moment of death, nothing will keep me from totally giving myself to one of the most fascinating processes God has given man. From here comes the true and deep healing of our entire being, with the awareness of the integrity, and the beauty of the natural process of which we're a part. When we acknowledge death and really accept it, a new spaciousness of freedom and creativity emerges within life itself, a space absent the fear of losing it. Actually, just as I was reading that I I realized uh, an insight i don't know if this was his intention but but really the process of change of opening ourselves ourselves to changing is in itself a little death letting go of who we are in order to become who we want to be or letting go it's not i don't really like how i said that it's not letting go of who we are it's letting go of things we're holding on to of identities of things which might have served us in the past in order to open to what's appropriate for now so somebody who spoke uh, this afternoon I was very close with Daniel said that what he learned from Daniel he said is, uh, is to not live or speak from shame and embarrassment including with myself and so that's what I what I want to to explore uh, especially with his inspiration um, which I felt in the past few days that uh, that life is really, is really precious and beautiful, and it can be lived that way, even if it takes some avodah. And as we approach Chanukah next week, just want to frame in that context that the inside the word Chanukah is chen, grace or charm, the quality of. Uh, uh, my teacher, Rav Daniel, said that in, in Eshet Chayel when we say sheker Achen, that, that chen is, is sheker, it's a lie, it's not a bad thing. It's in the sense that it's opposite of Emit, which has a characteristic of being measurable. But, but chen is something which is beyond measure. It's just this qualitative thing which flows through one when we're open, when we're free, when we're flowing. And kind of a Spiritual cogs and wheels are lubricated. And Chanukah, the name itself and the, sim- the simple meaning comes from Chanukah to Beit, from the rededication of of the temple um, and the relighting of the of the ner. And the word of lachnoch or l'chanech, which we translate sometimes as, as educate, like in English or in Latin, has the same meaning of leading out, leading out the inner potential, or inaugurating, using, activating. Um, it's talked about in Hasidut, uh, in Kabbalah, in that in the same way that there is the mikdash, there is the mikdash of ourselves. So we have a Chanukat HaBait of the Beit HaMikdash. We also have a Chanukat HaBait of, of activating ourselves, of lighting, or reigniting our own inner candle. The question is, well, what, get, what gets in the way from it from it burning? In the same way that in the story, there's a, a, a kind of uh, defilement, not a kind of, there's very much a defilement of the, of the Mizbeach, There's an effort to lashkirh, to make us forget, our Torah, to make us forget that that way of being, um, the wisdom which holds us into a way of living which reflects that light. Uh, So those same things happen within ourselves, the same forces which try and make us forget uh, or input beliefs which defile that most holy place that place of freedom, which is most epitomized in the Kodash of Kodashim, right in between the, uh, to Cherubim there, there's nothing, there is no thingness. It's the quintessential place of no thingness, of freedom, of energy. A few years ago I sat with uh, my campus rabbi in college and he said to me, you know, it seems like the way you are with other people isn't the way you are with yourself. And he, uh, r- what he said really struck a chord because it was very true of my experience at the time. I would say things to other people and be kind of surprised at the uh, tone of kindness um, because that was not the tone that I was experiencing within myself and not the texture which I was experiencing within myself. And I think it's not a coincidence that at the time, um, I I kind of craved intense engagement with other people, which I still love. But I think there was also a sense of not being able to be with myself, be happily with myself. about a year or so after that, I asked a teacher in India. I said, "Well, how do you deal with loneliness?" And he said something very simple. He said, "You know, I think you just have to learn to enjoy being with yourself." Which can be easier said than done, but certainly, certainly can be done. And and, uh, and I'm very happy to say that today I have a very different experience. And as as Robert Robert Frost says miles to go, miles to go in my, in my inner work. Um, but I'm no longer surprised when I speak to people kindly uh, because since then I've, I've made friends with myself um, and learned to listen to myself. And, and even as, as difficult things continue to arise on a day-to-day um, basis, learn to deal with them in a different kind of way. So that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about. There's a quote which which has been said here before and Avot the Rabinatan Ezughibu, who is a hero? The one who makes his the one who hates him into one who loves him. And I think that potential really exists with that with that harsh inner critic. I just wanna see. This might be a little bit vulnerable, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Let us see a show of hands, whoever's willing to say that they have at some point struggled with the inner critic or a harsh inner voice. Like today or? <laughs> <laughs> For instance. Uh, good, so we're all in it. I think that, that's just one helpful thing to notice, that everybody in this room raised their hand, and it would be hard to find a room where everybody wouldn't raise their hand. Yeah, I'm sure there are some people out there, but they're in their percentage negligible, Um, and so just having that in mind is often helpful. Whether it's the inner critic or other difficult things, knowing, wow, James sometimes says, whatever I'm experiencing at the moment, there are a million people experiencing it right now out there in the world, as in, you are not alone. You are not alone. so what's happening? How do how we come to be that way? It certainly doesn't seem uh, seem to be the way of children. So so what happens and, and how do we deal with it? The Piyaz says that there is a, uh, a constant drip passing through our nefesh and into our emotional embodied experience. And depending on how we relate to that, uh, is our the degree of our vitality. So if we open to it, if we are conscious and make space for the emotions that arise in us, we will merit a flood of vitality, of life energy. And if we run away from it or distract ourselves from it, then it will be just, uh, just a drip. We're hardly, hardly alive. Which, I mean, you know, the sad thing is that we take our standards from what we see around us, so when we see people living in a way which is just surviving and functioning, then we think, oh, that's, that's what it is to be alive. But then sometimes we're blessed to see people who are really alive and to show for us, hopefully, uh, an inspiration of, of how we could be if we learn to open to that energy source, skillfully. So then he, then the, Piazetzner comes with uh, what, for me, is one of the biggest and most powerful Torahs that I've ever learned. Uh, in, a, in a form of a parable, a parable, which is, I think, really what it means to be religious in a deep and uh, and real way, uh, and also what it means to be idolatrous uh, or to be of you zarah. Know, and the mashal goes like this: It's one line. Mashal lekomrei haMolech, a parable to the priests of Molech, who were child sacrificers. Shehekuba tupim. So the priests of Molech would play drums so that the father who's bringing his son as a sacrifice to be killed wouldn't hear his son crying out from amidst the flames of Molech. Haunting, haunting He says, the bodily feelings, the kinds of distractions we have roar to such an extent that the soul quakes what actually wants to come out into our consciousness from the neshama, pass in vain. And he says, it is a kind of miscarriage of the soul. A missing out on light. That is Avodah So if we take apart the mashal a little bit, I think it gives us deep insight into what happens, at least for me, in the inner experience. The drums are distraction. In the context of the inner critic, they're the harshness of the voice. The priests of Molech are the superego, the maladaptive beliefs, which at one time might have been helpful, defenses which no longer serve us but for instance when we were children if in order to protect somebody somebody else's uh, happiness or because our own needs weren't being answered or need to be heard or need to be loved um, or need to be listened to and the intensity of that experience at the time was, was too much so we developed a belief uh, to protect us from having to having to feel that. Or for instance, it happens a lot with perfectionism. We weren't getting the love that we want. And perhaps we were criticized for such. So we thought, oh, if I just do better, then I'll, then I'll be worthy of love. Then I'll be loved. And those be, those beliefs seep into our, into our subconscious, whether they were explicitly told to us or we just absorbed them through a kind of frictious encounter with the sandpaper of daily life in the world, internalizing that some of our needs and desires and dreams are wrong, illegitimate, impossible. That, I think, the, the Piazzetana is telling us, in my understanding, is that's, to go on living with that is a, is a navodazara. to be worshiping or living according to those beliefs. And at the same time, there's the father there. And what's so striking in the analogy is that what it implies is that if the father could hear the child, then why do the priest have to play the drums? Because of course the father would go and save the child because in the father's essence, he knows that he wants, he loves the child. He wants him to live. And that's a part of us which knows that. If, we could, if that part could only hear, we could only learn to hear the child's voice beyond the harshness, beyond the distractions. And what does the child want? What is he calling out for? What does he want from amidst those flames? Well, he wants to live. Of course he wants to live. And a child is the neshama. It's the, it's the part of us which, we, which is our deep, inner, vulnerable self And that self is meant to live out in our lives and to live out in the world, not to be shut up. But it's learned that the world is dangerous. Friedman Shaw wrote a book called The Fear and Anxiety Solution recently, and he says there are two prime motives of the subconscious. One is protection and one is happiness. Protection and happiness it starts to give us a, a sense of, well, how do we work with this situation? He explains that much of negative emotions is the experience of avoiding. Which says to me, first of all, the, and the Pesatsuna says this as well, the first step in the process is to be aware, is to notice. First notice, ah, harsh voice, inner critic, negative self-talk, and then remember, oh, Maybe there's more to this than meets the eye. And then start to listen. He says, there is a language that the subconscious understands and speaks that we have to consciously learn. The language is the language of the emotions. So I want to suggest uh, just a few ways in terms of practically how do we work with that. And the first one is listening compassionately. So we notice sometimes in a meditation practice, when we get distracted, for instance, and then we catch ourselves. So I ask you to investigate, what is the tone, what is the texture of the voice which relates to that distraction? Is it a kind of like, oh, no good at concentration, or you're such a bad meditator, or you've been doing this for how many years now? Uh, and, uh, and just noticing that and And for me, one of the, I think, big benefits of the practice has been that, it's actually that point where the practice, that is the practice, that is the place of the practice. And the practice then is, ah, caught myself, and then inner, in the kind of like new uh, inner voice that I'm cultivating, it's time to assert itself, Um, what I might call like the me who is connected to my heart, or the... Mature, or relatively mature, Danny. Um, and, and, and then from that place say, just know what it was thinking. Ah, thinking. Thinking. Or, oh, fantasizing. Fantasizing. And I usually say it twice, and I say it in a slow and really gentle and loving voice. Because that other voice is just a habit. And it will continue as long as we inhabit it and perpetuate it. But when we stop and just notice it, it will only keep going until it runs out of the fuel that it has. So just by noticing, first of all, and not being, not being identified with that, as with any other habit or way of being, we can already kind of let it dry out. But we can even catalyze that process and then replace it with that compassionate self. Uh, Rick Hansen, who is a uh, neuroscientist and meditation teacher, explained something which was very helpful for me. First of all, the harshness and the, the critique is there for a reason. And usually if you listen, one thing you'll, you'll often find is, oh, I want to be good or, or, or I want to be better. And that, is, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. We don't want to get rid of it. It's the harshness which is self-defeating. And the reason that it's self-defeating, or at least one of them, is, this is what, what he explains, that the voice that we hear inside of ourselves, we, our brain relates to as if it is something external. So when we encounter something external which is threatening, like, hey, anger, you know, there's like, oh, hey. And the truth is, when we hear that voice in our, inside ourselves, our defense mechanism goes like this. And it actually increases that sense of self, that sense of small self, which is putting up its boundaries because it feels existentially threatened on some level, which is intensified. And we want to be kind of relaxing that small self and opening to a more expansive, more resourceful place. So we're defeating ourselves by being harsh with ourselves, even though the heart of the harshness is about... Growth and is about desire for evolution and progress and betterment. So, for me, that's just a very helpful understanding of why we need to be kind with ourselves if we want to relax and open. The next Approach starts with just feeling the feelings. In the retreat last week, that was basically the instruction for the whole retreat. Just feel. Feel whatever is here. Let go of the story. Let go of the analysis. Even let go of trying to, to solve it. Let go of trying to make it better. Let go of trying to, to heal it, even. Because on some ultimate level, if we can just totally make peace with whatever feeling arises, even with harshness, then we're okay. In fact, we're already okay. It's just a matter of realizing it, of letting go of having problematized certain states. We can notice there's something harsh, present. in the same way if we're sitting in a movie theater and there's a movie playing on the screen, which might be very compelling. It might be very loud. It might have a very well-designed soundtrack to engage us. But in the movie theater, there's a whole lot of space which is not the movie. At the same time, usually we're so engrossed with the movie, we, we're experiencing it as real. And the same thing is true in, in our minds, with thoughts and emotions, that usually we're so engrossed in them that they, they become our whole reality, not realizing that there is a whole theater here, there's a whole spaciousness. When we open to that spaciousness or that field, it's like, oh, okay, there's a lot of spaciousness spaciousness here, a lot which is at rest, and there's also that voice doing its thing over there. That makes it a lot more manageable. Or if somebody comes in and starts spewing not nice things, and we don't pay them much attention, then how long are they going to go on doing that for? Or, all the more so, if we start relating to them with love, with acceptance, hearing that they're also responding from a place of struggle, a place of suffering. That's a beautiful story, a uh, beautiful story in Jack Kornfield's book on forgiveness about a woman whose, uh, whose son was shot and killed and she went to the trial of the, of the boy, it was a young boy, I think he was a, a gang member who who shot and killed her son. And right after his sentencing, she stood up and pointed at him, and she said, I'm going to kill you. And uh, he had been in jail for about six months, and she came to visit him. Maybe she brought him something, and she kept visiting him. And, And as he was about to be released, She said to him, well, do you, have a, do you have a place to go when you get out? And he said, no. She said, well, do you want to come and stay with me? And so he, he got out of prison and went to stay with her, and stayed with her for a while. And she helped him get a job. And, and in the space of time, they became friends. And, it, and at some point he asked her, he said, you know, that day in court you said, you're going you're gonna to kill me well, what was that about? and she said I didn't want the person who could do that to my son to keep living and she made it her business to let that person move on and let the gentle child inside, who needed some love and caring, grow to take his place. So in in that vein, one approach with working with that harsh inner critic is to first feel the feelings, and then to explore underlying beliefs. That brings them to us. So let's say, okay, what am I feeling? Oh, I'm feeling fear. And what is the fear saying? Fear might be saying, ah, if I do this and I don't do it well enough then I'll get rejected and then I won't be able to deal with that. Or whatever it might be. Once we recognize what belief is underlying, what story, what identity is underlying the harshness, then we can challenge it from this place, this adult place, a place of maturity, a place of understanding place which is no longer in that childhood place which couldn't handle it. And using our own experience or using what others have told us we can say, is it true? Is it really true? And start to feed in the data, the data of our own lives to challenge the beliefs which that is that identity is resting on. But it can't just be an, an analytical cerebral process. It has to be accompanied by empathy, right, compassion. That's the first stage. Friedman Shah, the same person I mentioned before, suggests taking a picture maybe of like your seven or eight-year-old self and really speaking to that child, listening, holding, inviting him or her to come and sit on your lap, to feel loved, to feel held, also experiencing yourself as the child being loved and being held. I heard that one of the uh, Tibetan words for enlightenment mean has two, two parts. One is moving away and blossoming or growing or something like that. So that's kind of what we're doing here. Part of it is... Not, not pushing away, but learning to not be consumed in the grasp of the harshness. And then the other piece is seeding and cultivating a new beautiful way of relating to ourselves. So we said we sung at the beginning via uh, hafta So Rabbi Nachman says, you can read it via lera komoha. And you should love your bad, difficult, hard parts of yourself also as part of you, also loving those parts. And what I found is that um, the more we accept ourselves, the more I accept myself, the more I love myself, the more I can love other people. Because the way it makes sense to me at least is that what is difficult for me about somebody else is only whatever that person evokes in me. Right? That's how we experience other people. But if I'm doing work to accept and integrate and love and be equanimous with all parts of myself, what can you do to me? Which is very different from putting up a shield and saying, you can't hurt me, sticks and stones, whatever. I'm just, I'm open to everything. And also, a consequence of that is, the more I learn to be compassionate with myself, the more I learn to hear in the harshness, in the, in the armor, the tenderness which is underneath it, the more I learn to hear that in other people's harshness as well. The more I learn to hear other people's anger calling out for connection. and can just bypass the anger, bypass the defensiveness which might have arisen, and respond directly to what that person might be. Might be actually seeking. The Tov says, in terms of practicing that, one of the beautiful places in Tefillah, in uh, in the um, third of the middle Brachot of the Shmones, where uh, where we where we seek forgiveness, corresponds to this sphere of Chesed. So it's a, an opportunity to feel ourselves loved, to let go. The Tov says, and uh, and Amudat Tefilah in Parshat Noach, the pasuk where Noach is being given instructions for building the teva, the ark, and it says, "Ve'el amah tchalena milamala." And it's says, and and it's kind of like stop off that window one amah, one measurement from 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 above, and Ba'al Shem Tov says, "Alti ama amah ela ima." Don't read it as amah. but but rather ima, mother. And he's talking about it in the context of tefillah and saying that we can just come as if you're a little child coming to a loving parent and just letting go and pouring out and crying and asking for love and receiving it and allowing ourselves, as we did at the beginning of our practice this evening, to be held, to let go, to feel ourselves safe. James says, quoting some... uh, Christian chaplains, give it to God, just give it to God. We feel ourselves loved, forgive ourselves, we let go. And then drawing on the data of our lives, drawing on what other people have told us, using our seichel, or using our neocortex to regulate the limbic system, can implant a, a positive, loving, Self and way of relating to ourselves. And do that with three components. There's a the belief, things that we tell ourselves, there's an image, and there's a feeling. And so each time that harsh voice comes up can be an opportunity. That's the opportunity. Oh, that's a kind of reminder to engage in the practice. Not and, and also otherwise, so we really make it a habit. And and um, what Friedman Schaub says, and I'd be interested if if people here try this over the next few weeks and uh, and and share he says for people who do that practice consistently within a few weeks their negative self talk drops by 80 percent and for some people they clown. totally that's 80 yeah how you're do, supposed to do yeah okay. good i'm glad you asked i'm right on that you know, it is. So, so one thing is to notice whenever it, whenever it comes up. And the first thing is to feel. Feel what's there. You kind of feel, notice, that, know that there's a child in there asking for something. In the same way that if a, a child actually comes to you crying, you will respond to her with love. You'll pick her up. You'll listen to her. You'll help her understand what's going on and relate to it skillfully. So you do that same thing with yourself. You're in a dialogue with yourself, and dialogue doesn't necessarily mean talking. Often it does, but it can be just holding, just loving, and uh, and and listen, and then and challenge, challenge the if you can identify what negative belief is, or what I'm just going to the negative what belief is underlying that, then say, well, is that really true, and check your experience for. For examples which could support a healthy way, you know, um, am I really a failure? Well, what about this time and that time and all of my friends who appreciate me and tell me this and that, and use those to uh, to support a different way of being. And if you do that every time, very quickly that um, that inner prosecutor will will lose its strength in the face of in the face of re- of your reality. The second and the second piece is to uh, is to cultivate a different, positive, healthy, loving identity to take the place of that one which is, which has lived past its time. Um, you do that with images, images of the past, or or visions of how you want to be, which attune the mind to seek opportunities to become that way. You do it with uh, with a new new belief. And you do it with the feeling, of really trying to summon the feeling and experience. Experience that self, which can be accompanied by that, that gentle inner voice, can be very helpful. And you can say, oh, yeah, all of a sudden now I am experiencing myself the way other people might experience me when I say, oh, hearing, hearing. And even if at first it feels contrived or forced, which it might, because we've become so identified with the negative self-talk that that feels us who we really are, so in time that, that grip on us softens and loosens and that other open-hearted self becomes a much more natural experience of, of who I really am. So I want to finish um, with the continuation of that Torah from the Piazzat's note. He says, Know how to look, li concerning everything which occurs within you and without. Know how to look, and this looking is not a mere seeing of something, but a kind of birth by which one births and brings forth something to gaze upon it. We bring forth and birth the form of the thing until there will be a form which we can gaze upon. Meaning, we really want to have a tangible sense of what's happening in there, and then, and then relate to it. And one who feels some emotion must look. That is to say, bring forth its form and gaze at the form of the emotion. It is not only small emotions which pass through him and are lost through the inability to look. Rather, complete mitzvot pass in the same way they came. He feels something inside himself and is unable to concentrate. Describe and know what he is feeling. Therefore, we adjure you, teach yourself to look. Be a person who seeks out God in every place. Where will you find him? In you and in all your surroundings. Meaning, once we start to engage in that process, When we open those harshness to discover the beauty inside, then what do we find there? We find the Divine. And it says, It is true that through this means of contemplation, it is already enough for you. If you contemplate and gaze at all the feelings that pass within you, that is to say, that you look in the face of all the supernal angels, levels, and aspects which pass through your heart and soul, This will already be enough for you to ascend and become a spiritual person and possessor of a pure consciousness. For a supernal consciousness will be revealed in you to see only holiness and spirituality and the glory of God which fills the whole world. Just by paying attention to what's coming up through us, learning to relate to it compassionately, with love, with attention, with interest, just that will be enough to purify us, to give us a supreme spiritual consciousness to experience the divine in ourselves, and others in others and in our world. Shinisa pay.